You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today we have Angela Benton, the founder and CEO of New Me. Uh, let's dive right in, Angela. How's it going? It's gone great. So, you know, we go way back. Way, uh, way you, back. You're the pioneer uh, and founder of Black Web 2.0. For the folks out there who weren't really around, I know you know we have new concepts such as Afrotech. We have you know different things going on. Angela started uh, Black Web 2.0. I believe she was before her time, mm-hmm. uh, almost 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about you know starting Black Web 2.0? And do you feel like you get enough credit uh, in terms of you've been in this space for a while, fighting for our people, being an advocate? Uh, Talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, So I started Black Web 2.0 in um, 2007, and it was, you know, basically a platform for African-Americans in technology. And we covered the gamut from, you know, what black executives were doing in tech to what Um, entrepreneurs were doing um and you know it was a fun time but it was the very 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 early days so I feel like it was like a group of us that all knew each other you know what I mean just from you know being online and everything and now you know flash forward you know 11 years later and there's there's this much bigger community you know around it and so it's exciting to see and in fact when when I go to things like Afrotech or um, you know other events and people don't know who I am I actually am like wow that's great I mean I think a lot of people may feel like slighted or something but I think you know your true influence comes from if you are able to influence other people who influence other people you know what I mean like like your influence is huge at that point so yeah it doesn't it doesn't bother me as much at all when you were uh, i like using religious terms but when you were preaching black tech religion way back in 2007 who else was doing that online because i don't remember anybody else uh kind of out there yeah i don't think there was anyone else now well there there were actually um there was no platform so there were individual people like um lindy johnson omar wasau who is one of the founders of black planet you know so there were people who were involved in black tech but they weren't necessarily like there was no platform where everyone was like kind of congregating and people were and were talking about black people and how we relate to technology like in an intelligent fashion so there wasn't anything okay got it so you were prominent uh in the any uh cnn special mm-hmm. uh uh what was the title of that special so um that was black in america which okay. was soledad o'brien's um documentary series that she did for cnn and the episode that we were in um was the promised land silicon valley and, um, you know, this was around the time accelerators and incubators were just becoming popular uh, around that time. And there was a lot of money flowing in Silicon Valley, really, at that time for people who just had ideas. They it was just bubbled up. Yeah, yeah, yeah it yeah. really was. Yeah. Uh, so how did that, um, how did you get on this program? Did they just reach out? They saw you in Black Web 2.0. How did that come about? 
Okay, so Black Web 2.0 was like 2007. New Me was 2011. I had actually just transitioned from Black Web 2.0. Like I, I had let my last writer go. I was moving on um, to something else. And I actually didn't know what that something else was going to be um, until about a month later. And I was reminded that I had did a conference the previous year um, into the 2010, the new me conference. And this, this conference, I mean, it was small. It was like a summit. We, um, handpicked like a hundred entrepreneurs from like around the country. And the whole idea was to have kind of like a think tank on how we can get more black entrepreneurs successful in the technology industry. And one of the, uh, actually Don Charlton, who, um, was the founder of a company called The Resumator, or formerly The Resumator, it's now called Jazz. He was working on a different company, I think, at that time, possibly. Actually, no, I think it was the same company, um, The Resumator. But anyway, his his um, feedback was, why don't we, they have these things called accelerators and incubators, why don't we do one of those? And I remember thinking when he said it, and got up and said it, that, wow, that's a great idea, but that seems like really hard to do, like a lot of work. And I didn't think about it again until March of 2011 um, when I started the planning process of um, getting new me together. And so really, it was just a lot of legwork. I didn't know anybody in Silicon Valley, like running Black Web 2.0. I definitely had connections um, with people in the technology industry, like between New York, between Silicon Valley, but my connections weren't on the investment side at all. It was all corporate um, and stuff like that from basically selling advertising and sponsorship at Black Web 2.0. So when I um, started reaching out to people and, and pitching this concept, um, we ended up getting like a ton of really good feedback from people and people wanting to support and sponsor, which was awesome. Um, and so we were able to raise money to host, you know, eight entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley for at the time it was nine weeks. And throughout that whole process, we got a few articles written about us. One of them was we had an article written about us in the Wall Street Journal Venture Wire, which is a trade journal. A producer from CNN had read that article and then reached out to us. So, you know, at the time we had a lot of publicity and media and exposure and people would always say like, who is your publicist? Like, how did you make all of this happen? And it's like, you know, when, when you create a lane for yourself and you are authentic to who you are, like stuff happens, stuff falls into place that's supposed to happen because I didn't have a publicist or anything. It just happened the way that it was supposed to. And I see you on television. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there uh, where they're covering the good work you're doing. Do you use a PR firm now? Um, yeah, I have a publicist now. Okay. Um, I, I ha I've had a publicist for, I would probably say, the past five years. So folks out there who are looking to build their brand and essentially have opportunities come to them organically like yourself, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what, are, what is the best advice for folks out there like, hey, I really want to build my brand and I want to put these pieces together to help my business? I think a lot of people, when they talk, start to talk about building a brand, especially 
online and in this age of social media, they tend to only think about like the aesthetic, right? So what does this Instagram post look like? Um, Or, you know, what does my logo look like? And branding is actually so much more than that. I feel like, you know, I'm obviously very conscious of stuff like that, but I'm also very conscious about the people that I work with and that I partner with too. Like, I don't, I don't, there's a lot of people that just think the more activity they do, like the further they'll get, the more successful they, they'll, they'll get. But I turn, I turn a lot of stuff away. You know what I mean? So um, I think you also have to be mindful about who you want to work with, how you want to work with them and how that partnership um, will move your own brand forward. Okay. Got it. So you moved to SV from where? I was in Charlotte. Okay, and did you grow up there? I didn't. Okay, what's cool? um, like? How did you uh, so, get to Charlotte? So I grew up in um, the Northern Virginia um, area, and I was living in Maryland um, before um, moving to Charlotte. And at the time, you know, I was married, had kids, and you know, we bought a house in Charlotte. Everyone was moving to Atlanta, so the plan we actually had driven down. The plan was to buy a house in Atlanta, but we stopped in Charlotte because a lot of people were talking about Charlotte at the time. And we settled on Charlotte because it wasn't as saturated as Atlanta. Yeah. So it was, you know, just kind of weird just ending up in Charlotte, like, you know, with no family there or anything like that. Um, and then, you know, when, um, the C- when we had gotten, I guess, the go from the producers at CNN that we would be filmed, Um, and everything that was interesting. I knew that I was going to have to make a decision on where I was going to live like full time. Um, because at that time I I was divorced, um, by then. And, you know, so I was a single mom with three kids and like had my own business. And I just, I knew that the documentary was going to be huge because nobody was talking about it. And I just feel like, because you know, I've been kind of in this space for so long since 2007, you can you can see and you can feel when stuff is starting to bubble up and stuff is starting to change. Um, And I felt like that was happening at that time. And so many more people were even just interested in tech and interested in being involved, or interested in how you know, African Americans could be involved. And so I think the timing was absolutely perfect um, for that. But I also knew you know, when this airs, how many opportunities are you going to be able to catch and um, move forward on being based out of Charlotte? And not many. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. You know, you can't kind of be bi-coastal with three kids as a single mom. That's pretty hard to do. So, you know, I made the decision to relocate my family um, to the Bay Area. And that special, uh, I'm assuming it opened up a lot of doors for you in terms of making that bet that I'm going to go live in SV and stuff kind of sprouted from your prior work, but the CNN, did it really give you like a, a push out there in terms of opportunities opening up? Um, 
how can I put this? So yes, yes and no. When you when you have that level of exposure, you get different types of people that are attracted to you. So you get people that want to um, work with you and help with you genuinely. You get people who are just excited about what you're doing and they want to be involved and they really want to be like led. You get people who want to attach themselves and exploit what you're doing. And so, you know, I there were a lot of doors that were, you know, open for me. Like, you know, my whole investor network, the base of it was Mitch Kapoor's investor network. You know, when we um, did the documentary series, he was an interview subject in it and then really became like a mentor um, for our entrepreneurs, but then also for me and like kind of guided us at the very, very early stages. And when it came time to do our demo day, they were, him and Frida were involved, Frida uh, Kapoor's his wife, were involved, you know, in the planning process of that. We had it at their office and he genuinely wanted it to be successful. He opened up his investor network. He sent emails out. I sent emails out. He sent follow up emails to make, you know, people come. So you get people like that, that, you know, are genuine. Can you share uh, a little bit uh, for the audience on uh, who the Kapoor's are? Oh, so just really quick. Yeah. yeah, So Mitch and Frida Kapoor, for for people who don't know, they are. I mean, Mitch is a legend. He started Lotus, which um, is was kind of like a competitor to Microsoft products like Microsoft Word. They had like Lotus Notes. I think Lotus One, Two, Three. Oh my God, I'm dating myself right now. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> but um, so you know, he is for sure a billionaire, and then some. Um, and he is the equivalent to a Steve Jobs. Like that's who he hung out with. If you read the Steve Jobs biography, Mitch's name is mentioned in it because, you know, uh, Steve, uh, Mitch, Bill Gates, they were, they were like in the same group, um, of entrepreneurs that were working on things back in the day. So he is an angel investor. Now they, they do some, um, amazing work. And what's their, um, their racial background? For the audience um mitch is i mean he's white he's jewish yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah um frida i don't know if frida's jewish but they're white okay. yeah yeah uh you know i hear a lot of great things about uh from people who've actually worked with them mm-hmm. uh so you know we talked years ago and you talked about some of the bubbleheads in silicon valley mm-hmm. uh they didn't really have conviction they're looking for a lot of these companies looking for pr they don't yes uh can you talk a little bit about you know, the challenges you had within the SV culture living out there, mm. uh, and then that playing a part in you moving here to Miami. Sure. So the culture in Silicon Valley is interesting because you, you have this perception of innovation, right? And so with innovation, you think people are generally open-minded, but it it's a small percentage in my opinion there's a small percentage of people that are actually open-minded who are actually the thought leaders and everybody else just says everything that they say um and so when you have um ecosystems that are like that there's actually not a lot of original thought um and so you know if one person says oh i'm not working with this company anymore all of a sudden 
you know, this one company has a bad rap with like everybody in Silicon Valley. Um, so there, there's things about the ecosystem like that, that I didn't like. I mean, I like to think of myself as like an independent thinker. I just like to do things like creatively. Um, and I kind of just try to operate in my own lane. However, especially starting like the first accelerator for minorities, a lot of people, a lot of people, of course, got it and they supported us, but there were still people who were like, so I just don't understand why this is needed because there's Y Combinator or 500 startups, you know what I mean? And it's, it's really hard to articulate to someone who doesn't understand, who thinks the information, A, is all online and can be digested in that fashion, and B, who doesn't understand, even if all the information were actually online, if you are someone who's not from this ecosystem, you don't know what to search, you don't have access to that information. So it's like, you know, little stuff like that. And I really just wanted to, I felt, I felt like I could not um, progress um, as an entrepreneur, as you know, a human being independently um, within Silicon Valley anymore. And that's why I decided to move. That sounds like a, a nice way to say, hey, these white folks out in Silicon Valley, you know, there's a lot of fakery uh, and I'm just not, not feeling what you guys are doing out here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Get yeah. out of my head, Jamarlin. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, that that's really what it was. You know, new me was in transition. Um, we were really see what a lot of people don't understand is a lot of these accelerators and incubators, they're started by people who are independently wealthy. So they've had another company and have funded it themselves. New me has never been that. We basically were able to raise money to get sponsors to support us so that we could operate this. Um, thing, but then that became tricky when the sponsors wanted certain things that were not in the best interest. I personally think of the entrepreneurs that we were working with, so I had to change our business model. And then when we were changing our business models, you know, certain people weren't feeling it at all, and so I I had to do a lot of bullshit basically to keep things stable professionally before I moved. So for instance, the one week accelerator that, you know, we've been doing for years now, and now it's other people, you know, that are doing it. It's other people that are doing online accelerators. And I've been doing that. I tested that in 2014, but I had to test it privately because it was frowned upon by people who were supporting me. And so I just didn't want to operate in a covert way because I was scared that, xyz person was gonna say something bad about the direction that we were going and then give this signal silicon valley is all about signaling give this signal to the ecosystem when the reality of it was actually quite opposite because we were doing great work we were able to help more people but we still had the same outcomes like people have raised over 43 million dollars now at this point if you like what you're hearing, you could check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. That's moguldom.com. We have the latest information on tech, crypto, the business of Hollywood, and economic empowerment. Uh, you can also check me out on Twitter at Jamarlin Martin. Let's get back to the podcast. When you're in the belly of the beast, you're living in SV. Do you feel like in some 
areas you were blacklisted in terms of you hey i keep it real i'm not coming out here in san francisco tap dancing i don't care i have a mission i'm here for the people i'm here for my movement and i don't give a fuck Absolutely. Do you feel like they just they like kind of tap dancing kind of safe negroes and you weren't playing along yeah absolutely so you know the the people who i felt did this the most (laughs) shall remain nameless but you know people always show you who they are if you watch and if your eyes are open and if you watch how certain people move within the ecosystem they only get the black folks that's around them that can be manipulated and I started they're weak. They're right? weak. So, they can be manipulated. Yeah. They will do whatever they need to do. And then when I saw that started to happen, I stopped getting invited to certain events. It's like, man, y'all try to run a, a, a modern plantation out here. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, some of your sponsors, you know, their, their market caps are hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, can you just kind of give us an example of, hey, you know, I want to do this what's in the best interest of the people and the mission, but why are you guys asking for this PR stuff? This is not about PR. Yeah, so, all right. So when when we first started selling sponsorships for New Me, it was a it was it was a social impact kind of thing. Like people really felt good supporting us because they were doing the right thing. And then we had the exposure of you know the CNN documentary special and then we went back the next year for more funding and because we had this exposure you know it was obviously increased and then the next year you know we just kept getting bigger and bigger and better and better and the next year we went to increase it but it was just it was capped I think at a certain amount that was unrealistic for the level of exposure that they were getting from the brand affiliation from Numi. Numi is the first Black Accelerator, off top, just being associated with us says, whether you say it verbally or not, says that you're about Black entrepreneurs and supporting them, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it just really, it became not the best thing for me or for new me um, to continue certain partnerships where, you know, people really wanted us to stay the same. Yeah. They wanted us to be, you know, a 12-week accelerator and not do anything different because why Combinator does it this way, so why do it any other way? And it doesn't matter if this new way is actually a better way and we can reach more people um, and all of these other benefits. They just, they weren't feeling it. Uh, do you think you leaving SB in part due to the, some some beef with the culture out there that's correlated with uh studies have shown a lot of uh, black people have left uh companies like google facebook just because in the culture it's really hard to keep keep your blackness intact hey i'm not tucking that Mm. in i'm not tap dancing i want to work in in an environment that's supportive for my mental health who i am Mm -hmm. uh my own self-awareness but these environments are actually neutering This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The, the professional, and so mm-hmm. they're leaving. So it's not a, you know, a lot of people say hey, it's not a lot about getting more black folks into Google and Facebook because a lot of these people will leave for cultural considerations. Right. Do you think there's a comparison between the two? What's interesting is I was just reading an article talking about all people leaving Silicon Valley like they're leaving in droves in fact there's a U-Haul shortage because so many people are leaving um I'll try to tweet. mainly for cultural considerations yeah it's expensive to live there yeah. like people there's better places to live um that are more diverse you know what I mean for a lot of different reasons I personally left because you know I was there for work like I said I could not I felt like First off, this this phrase, the belly of the beast, that's very much what it felt like um, because there weren't a lot of black people out there. There were like, you know, there were some, but it was, you know, I did not feel like there weren't the blabberies and the Afrotechs of the world and shout out to them and what they're doing where there's other black people that look like you, you know what I mean, and talk like you and you could actually be yourself and that's one of the things I'm most proud of with new mean because when we were bringing people out there for 12 weeks like that's what we created in this little bubble that we had and that's why everybody that comes through new me is like a family it's not like an accelerator speaking of uh, new me uh, you've touched uh, quite a few people uh, in the black tech space uh, I believe you worked with Brian Dixon, who's now a venture capital uh, partner at Kapoor. Mm-hmm. You worked with him initially. So Brian, um, I mentored Brian when he was still in school. I was working out of the Kapoor's um, office, and this was the early days of New Me. Um, and he was there like on an internship, and I let him kind of shadow some things that I was doing. Yeah, with New Me. Uh, um, Brian Breckin. Brian uh, Breckin. You're an investor in his company. Yeah. You backed him uh, early on. Yep, 2012. Yeah. Like, yeah, are, yeah, when like he was super, super early. And the founders that have gone through New Me, uh, how much capital have they raised? Um, so far, they raised um, about 43 million. Wow. Actually, a little over 43 million. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there a black accelerator that has that? No. No. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, Can we cuss on it? Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Talk yeah, my yeah. shit. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the founders that you're mentoring, that you're teaching with New Me, what are the things uh, that they struggle with the most outside of, hey, it's hard to raise capital, but just in terms of getting into the tech game, it's not like it's 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 native to the culture in terms of we know a lot of people in the culture mm-hmm. that come up through this system. What are they struggling with the most in terms of the fa- the black founders that you work with? Honestly, what a lot of people don't understand is a lot of my job is showing people how to maneuver in this space. Like, you know, yes, we do, you know, other stuff like, you know, work on your product, make sure, you know, you actually have traction you know, work on your pitch deck, but all of those things are tactics so that you are equipped to maneuver the right way in the space to get to your goal. That's all I do. And so, you know, the relationships that I have with investors are important for that. And then the relationships that I have with entrepreneurs are important for that. But what about kind of, you know, mapping out 
their, their, their business plan, their forecasting, you know, how are they thinking about recruiting a talented team? Mm-hmm. Like, are there any areas you see like, hey, uh, you know, uh, a lot of these founders are struggling with this thing? I would definitely say most entrepreneurs, not just black entrepreneurs, get caught up in the idea of a product and not even if they execute the idea, it's like they get so caught up in the idea of it that they forget, oh, shit, I got to make money. You know what I mean? And um, they don't realize like, oh, you need a business model. Oh, you need a financial model. How does your business model scale? Um, One founder that um, I had worked with was really, really good at this. And this is not a blanket statement. So this doesn't you know, apply to everyone. But, you know, Frederick Hudson at Pigeonly, who I'm also an investor in that company, was what he did extremely well off top when I started working with them in 2013 is he knew his business inside and out from a numbers perspective. He was probably the even we started in 2011. He was probably the first entrepreneur that I've met, I had met at that point that really understood their business from that perspective. So the conversations that he had with investors were completely different. So we're talking about early stage capital, right? Where most of it is focused on the idea. And if I remember correctly, the founder that you're talking about, he did time in jail. Yeah, he was um, in jail or in prison for five years for trafficking marijuana across like several states. And how did investors kind of, how did he navigate that uh, in terms of the, the raising capital process? Um, at the time, that was actually a, a big discussion that we Like, man, I used to push we were weight, having. but yeah. uh, I'm changing now. <laughs> well, it was, it was a funny conversation yeah. because we did not know, you know, should he hide this part of him or should we position it that he was just like more of an expert For him, he was working, his company is focused on inmate services. And so, you know, my gut at the time was saying, okay, well, you're a subject matter expert. This is no different than, you know, Joe, who is a machine learning, you know, engineer that's, you know, starting whatever startup. So we're going to position you as a subject matter expert. Um, And that's what we did, you know, and it worked. You talked about being a, a single mother with three kids. Can you talk to the audience, particularly the single mothers out there, uh, who may doubt that they can do big things as, as you're doing big things professionally and kind of balance everything? Like, like what's mm. part of your magic to be so ambitious, to execute your business plan, but also, you know, be a good mother and raise uh, three kids? Hmm. Well, first off... Um I threw the idea of balance out, I would say, a long time ago. You know, when I started as an entrepreneur, I was 26. um, And like I was um, divorced and single mom of three. So the idea, there was never really an idea of balance. It's every day is going to be different. I think people define balance as I have a routine. This is what I'm going to do every day. I have X, Y, Z amount of time for myself and that's cool and everything but balance doesn't necessarily look like that all the time you know i worked really hard when you know i was in my 20s and thank god i had you know the energy to do so 
But when I was diagnosed with cancer, my kids went to live with my ex-husband full time. And then, you know, I was basically just taking care of myself. And so all of the balance that I didn't have in my life earlier on in my life, now it's like I, I have balance later in my life. Um, so, you know, throwing out this idea of what balance actually is, I think is definitely step one. Also, finding your purpose and your purpose. I, I think your purpose might change and your purpose isn't easily easy. You can't always easily articulate what it is. And sometimes it's just a feeling. And I have a feeling about myself that I am here on this planet for a reason. And it's not just to mother children. Like that's a part of it. But I feel like I, I really do feel like I have a bigger purpose. And so that's kind of what drives me. Um, and when I was younger, it drove me in a very, I think, masculine and ambitious way. And now I think um, that drives me in a more creative way where I allow, I allow myself to explore different things um, creatively that will take me to my next level. So essentially, you buy into, for yourself, the idea that, hey, you know, there's there's different ways to look at balance where, hey, I'm going to go real hard for 10 years and I can kind of lighten the load and free up. My freedom will kind of come into play later once I mm-hmm. accomplish these things. So for that 10 years, I'm just going to focus mainly on building my business. I'm kind of saying that, but I'm kind of not saying that because I feel like when people say, well, I'm just going to go hard for 10 years on this business, they really do go hard and they forget about their health. And that's not, (laughs) no, let's not do that. But yeah, so, so go hard, I guess, with some perspective, you know, but then also just realize, especially if you're an entrepreneur, especially if you're about to be an entrepreneur, like you feel like that's just what you're going to do is create new things. It's going to be ups and downs. Like some years you might have five years straight where shit is really popping and then you might have two years where stuff is slow, and that might be your your year of balance. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that was uh, uh, my template. I, I used to say that a lot. That you know, I would go super hard uh, for about ten years, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know, so a more balanced life would would uh, open up later. But for the audience, I want to uh, share one of my favorite quotes from Jim Rogers, who's the co-founder of one of the most successful uh, hedge funds with George Soros. This is what he says about success. Most of us don't have the discipline to stay focused on a single goal for 5, 10, or 20 years, giving up everything to bring it off. But that's what's necessary to become an Olympic champion, a world-class surgeon, or a Kirov ballerina. Even then, of course, it may all be in vain. You may make a single mistake that wipes out all the work. It may ruin the sweet, lovable self you were at 17. That old adage is true. You could do anything in life. You just can't do everything. That's what Bacon meant when he said a wife and children were hostages to fortune. If you put them first, you probably won't run the three and a half minute mile, make your first 10 million, write the great American novel, or go around the world on a motorcycle. Such goals take complete dedication. Uh, Do you believe a good deal of entrepreneurs, they come into the game thinking they can go out to parties, they can have a, uh, a, be in a committed relationship, they can spend time with their family, and you can compete with the best in the world and go, you know, scale a startup. 
How um, often do you see that kind of misperception? You know what's interesting? I'm thinking about a lot of the founders that I worked with early on in New Me definitely subscribe to that, which is I'm foregoing a relationship. I'm foregoing these things of comfort because, you know, whatever they may be, because I'm focused on this business and, you know, what I want um, to get to, which, you know, was fine. I definitely think I encouraged that um, at the time. That's not something I, I don't, I just am in a different phase of life that I would encourage now. However, I do believe um, this quote because most people expect for this idea of success to happen overnight and it doesn't like it literally takes 10 plus years to happen and there's something admirable about somebody who can focus on something for that long consistently um there was a quote i was actually just about to post it on my instagram um and it said the secret to success is staying consistent when everyone else doesn't um and i i totally i totally believe that you talked about health. Uh, you're a cancer survivor. Can you talk about that experience and how that has kind of optimized how you view being a mogul uh, and being a leader in the community and kind of what, what your next step is? Sure. You said that so eloquently because that's exactly what it is, is optimization. It's like I still want to accomplish many of the same things, but now I'm smart enough to realize I'm not going to kill myself in the process. And I'm also, now I realize like, oh shit, like we're all really going to die. Because like when you're young in your 20s, I mean, you know you're going to die, but it's like, you don't really think about it. Like yeah. you secretly think you're going to live forever, right? Yeah. But I'm um, going through something like cancer. You're like, Shh, my time really is limited. So how am I going to spend the time that I have left here? And once you start thinking about it from that perspective, it is a perspective of lack, but it forces you to get rid of all the bullshit, all the stuff that you don't really want to do. You're like, mm, I'm not feeling this anymore. Then stop doing it and focus on something that, you know, you do like that you are passionate about. Um, and so, you know, in terms of my personal life, I, I use that and, um, you know, cancer could have been seen you know, by anyone as a negative situation, but it was really a positive situation for me because I just feel like I have a better overall life from that experience. I just learned so much about myself as a business person, as like a human being. And I feel like I'm more prepared holistically to go to my next level now than I would have ever been before. So Facebook recently has been in the news the stock, I think, is down another uh, 2% today. Oh, wow. uh, it, it's, it has lost over $100 billion in market cap. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks are, are angry and frustrated, disappointed in Facebook in terms of how they have handled yeah. uh, the user data, uh, their involvement with Cambridge Analytica. Do you believe Facebook has topped out, that it goes down from here, that it would be hard to, for that business to grow? If you had to make a bet, whether to bet on the price of Facebook going up, or you can use that money to bet that it's mm -hmm. gonna go down mm -hmm. uh, from here. Would you be long or short? Uh, I really just depend, I feel like that all depends on the news cycle and what's being fed, yeah. like, you know what I mean? But um, what I will say is 
this, especially with internet companies, I mean, I guess with all companies, you have your seasons. Like, MySpace was popping, and then it wasn't. Um, so, you know, if I, I mean, I would invest, I think, in Facebook. I don't think it's topped out only because, you know, Snapchat also had some other, you know, interesting falls in their stock, but I actually would have more faith in investing in a Facebook than a Snapchat, even though Snapchat is a, is a newer platform. So, yeah. Do you have any critique for the leadership at Facebook going from Zuckerberg, Sandberg, Peter Thiel, Mark Andreessen? Do you feel any type of way in terms of how the company's being ran and who's, who's like leading the company? Um, I, what I will say is I did watch the uh, interview that uh, Mark did with um, Lori Siegel on C- CNN. And, you know, I, it sound, the interview was good. It sounds like he's self-aware. It sounds like he realizes how transparent he should have been way before. Um, and, you know, he's not someone that is like a fan of being public and doing interviews. But I think that's something that you have to do when yeah. you're the CEO of like a huge company. And so, you know, whether you're a socially awkward person, like he should have been giving, you know, being that transparent. Yeah. Uh, in uh, Cambridge Analytica out of the UK, the, the, the British Parliament wanted uh, Mark Zuckerberg to come and, and talk to them and explain some things. He kicks it to a product person or and, right. and another now person. Now that, that's... Crazy. He, yeah, yeah. Today crazy. he announced that he would not speak to Parliament. So he'll go after everybody's data. He'll go collect that check. Mm-hmm. But when the government, who are elected by the the the, the people, or represent the people, uh, he won't he won't talk to the to the people. Right. Uh, uh, you know, it, it calls into question not only him, but I think Sheryl Sandberg as well is. What spooks them out so much? uh, Well, they need to have someone from executive leadership, like not a product person. So Cheryl or Mark needs to be, you know, the people for sure at that. And so with Cheryl Sandberg, a lot of people, you know, have talked about, hey, you know, there's no people of color on the board. They just Mm -hmm. uh, uh, hired Kenneth Chenault from Amex Mm -hmm. like in 2018. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... They seem super, super light on this concept of diversity. Facebook is facing a lot of criticism, but I feel like Sheryl Sandberg, she's she's getting a pass, uh, uh, in part because she's a white woman. Mm, uh, she's uh, getting a pass she, how? She's getting a pass in terms of being held accountable. So when mm. she came to Facebook, she's like, hey, she's the adult in the room, right? right. She's going to go watch Mark and kind of... Right tidy up the place and this little kid this little geek is is running the company but now that the trouble is really kind of pervasive the Mm -hmm. problems are really pervasive uh i don't see a lot of criticism for her specifically meaning that she she can ride the stock up and get all the glory but when it's time to face the heat hey i'm not i'm not sticking my neck out there i'm not saying too much i mean that's just not i feel like if you've been in silicon valley like that's not surprising if you are a darling in Silicon Valley, like, people are just not going to come for you like that. And I definitely feel like she's one of those people. Um, you know, if you can find this interview, there's an interview that um, her and I were on when she was promoting the Lean In campaign initially. We did it on Huffington Post. And I asked her a question about, you know, they're, like, 
everybody's talking about how great this is, but you're not talking about a large percentage of women, which is black women who are single moms. Didn't somebody call her out on social media after the a recent uh, election where black women really carried the Democratic candidate over? I think someone called her out uh, on social I don't media. know. I might have missed that, especially if it was on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter as much anymore. But, you know, I asked her directly in the interview and she curved the question like a champ. You know what I mean? Like this is this is what um, she does. And, you know, then after... You know, she started, I think she started being more aware and including people like Oprah, right? So now you have a black woman um, involved. And so, you know, I think she did strategic things like that. But if just take a look back, do some research very early on, like the leaning campaign very early on, it was about white women. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, 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 I'm glad uh, you said that. Because when she comes on Bloomberg and she's like, you know, we're going to do more to help minorities. We're not doing enough. When I hear a Sheryl Sandberg say, well, she says women and minorities. When I hear her say women and minorities, I feel like black people are not really at the table. That African-American who comes from a descendant of slaves here mm-hmm. in the United States that really like... You know, we're in the back of the bus when these Silicon Valley people are talking about women and minorities. Okay, so for people who don't know, I'm going to definitely drop some gems on you right now. This is how it works in Silicon Valley. So after the CNN documentary, Black in America, everybody was about diversifying Silicon Valley in favor of black people, right? That's what people wanted. Then the narrative started to shift. And if you look back at other things in history, this happens historically. The narrative started to shift from black people to women. And now a lot of the resources are going to women. When they talk about diversifying, well, they're, talking, like about, December, they're talking about women. Yes, they're yeah. talking about women. And it still remains Google, whomever can Facebook, they can all publish this, you know, diversity data all they want every year but until they make some real changes the numbers are going to stay flat and they have been flat that's because they don't actually really care in my opinion if we were to look back uh 10 years from now and we look and we look at the data so there's all this talk about diversity inclusion when you look at the actual numbers of who what groups are actually going to benefit the most dollar Mm -hmm. for dollar right what percentage of that pie is going to be white women in terms of uh, out of 100% of people are the 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 progress we see from here. Right. I mean, white women are still privileged. So, you know, if you think about it, out of this whole pie that we have to diversify the industry, resources are being redirected to a group that's still privileged, but they are a minority, but they are still privileged in comparison to black and brown specifically african-americans black people and hispanic people how how much uh of this is our fault where we haven't checked the sheryl sandbergs the mark zuckerbergs the elites in silicon valley that that talk about people of color uh women minorities why haven't the black community said hey call out african-american i want to hear my name in that sentence in terms of if you're really serious Mm -hmm. about uh inequality i don't want to be lumped in with uh, with everybody else my story is so different than everybody else 
because they're scared. Like I'm, a, if you scared, say you scared. They're scared. This is why, this is why I stopped taking sponsorship dollars. Yeah. When you take money from people, they control the narrative. If I take money from said company, how vocal can I really be without fucking up my pockets? Is a lot of the problem on our side, at least folks who are challenging uh, the folks out in Silicon Valley, the elites in Silicon Valley, is that it seems like everyone's banging with like a Dr. King flag, but we mm. don't have enough people who, you know, are really, you know, telling the people the truth. Mm. Uh, because obviously everybody wants them. Everyone wants a check. Everyone right. wants, you know, to, 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 to get a, a, a promotion or an investment in a company, or they want to get the white folks in Silicon Valley to, to, to back them, to right. sponsor them, to give them a halo over right. their head. Right. So I feel like that has completely compromised a lot of smart people out there where no one's really speaking the, the truth because they're scared. Yeah, they're scared and or they are motivated by money. So, and nothing's wrong with money. Don't get me wrong. I like money too, but I know who I am, you know, in my core. And I'll make decisions based on what I think is right, period. Not because of the money that's... I've walked away. I've had to restart my business and walk away from hundreds of thousands of dollars just because I knew something wasn't right. Yeah. You know? And what do you say to that entrepreneur who says, look, I cannot, you know, speak the truth or speak up for the people, my uh, particular group. I just need to get this money. I'm going to shut up and dribble for 10 years. Michael Jordan did that for the most part. You know, I'm just going to shut up and dribble and I'll worry about the social stuff and fight for my people after I get this money. So I'm just going to shut up and dribble for the next 10 years. I think I think everybody has their place in um, a fight like this. And I think the best thing that we can do is be strategic and leverage where everyone's at. So the people who are in that place and are like, I'm going to shut up and dribble, but I'm going to reinvest in my community in 10 years. That's fine. That's cool. You're in this box right here. But the problem is 90% of the people, black people in Silicon Valley can't be in that box. We got to have some people that are willing to um, call people out, that are willing to, you know, take, well, not even, I was going to say take sacrifices, but not, I'm not even going to say that. It's just really challenge people. This is about challenging people. And we're not speaking up so that people are being challenged. And this was myself included. Like, you know, when when my business model was different with new me and I was living in Silicon Valley and I was in the belly of the beast, it was extremely stressful. I didn't feel like I had a good, you know, even personal support network where of just friends where I could talk to like real and they didn't want nothing from me or it wasn't going to circle, you know, go back, you know, be back channeled to somebody else in Silicon Valley. I didn't have an outlet of people that I really trusted. And so, you know, I just, I wasn't even in a position to call people out. Um, and I, you know, I still think about it. There, there have been times where I feel like I should have called people out. Um, and I didn't. Thanks everyone for supporting the Go Podcast. You can check me out on Twitter at Jamarlin Martin. Uh, you can also check us out at moguldom.com. Be sure to subscribe to our Moguldom newsletter. You're going to get the latest on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. If you like the show, be sure to go to moguldom.com. Let's go.